podcast listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Oswetsluk, and today it is Sunday, March the 7th, 2021. Talking to me via Zoom is one of two Dutch authors of a new book, The Armed Forces of North Korea on the Path of Songun. And before we begin, I'd like to encourage all of our listeners to check out NK News, your specialist source for trusted information on North Korea. Get behind the headlines at nknews.org. You'll find some very interesting articles by our guest, as well as lots of other people there. And to introduce my guest properly today, Joost Olimons is an analyst focused on DPRK military capabilities. Together with Stein Mitzer, he co-authors the Oryx blog, which you can find at www.oryxspioncorp.com. I'll put the link up on the show notes. In late 2020, he and Stein published a new book, The Armed Forces of North Korea, On the Path of Songun. We actually first tried to record this interview way back at the end of January, but because of some audio problems, we're doing it all again. So I want to thank you once again for coming on the show a second time, Yoast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me again. Let's hope everything goes according to plan this time. It's my pleasure. And we'll uh, warn the uh, the listeners ahead of time that on the half hour and on the full hour, you may hear church bells in the background, which is quite common in the Netherlands, is it not? Uh, yeah, haven't managed to fix that problem yet, but I uh, <laughs> hope you can live with it. We can, I think so. All right. So this book, which is an excellent book, and I recommend it to all of our listeners who want to understand the North Korean military more, uh, The Armed Forces of North Korea on the Path of Songun, a beautiful color. It's almost like a, a, a what do you call it, a coffee table book. I mean, you can leave it there and just uh, browse through it and, and look at all the North Korean technology and, and uniform types. Um, but you start the book by retelling the story of the sinking of the South Korean corvette, the Chonan, on the 26th of March 2010, almost 11 years ago. Why did you start with that? Well, that's, there's probably two reasons that are both equally important for that. Uh, and the one is that uh, we actually started work on this book. Uh, perhaps as much as six or seven years ago. So back then, that that was really the the most recent high-level provocation uh, incident between between the two countries. But it, it also ha still has uh, a much more significant relevance today than than perhaps any other modern uh, incident between North and South Korea. And um, it 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 really um, links in well to the theme of the book, which is that North Korea has sort of chosen this this path path where it, it prioritizes its its military only that fact is uh yeah they express it not only uh in their their own economy but even in diplomacy uh as as uh, well as we we attest that, that that incident is an example of right and of course uh most of our listeners will be familiar with the fact that songun the word that's in the title of your book uh, means military first uh in in north korean now, here in South Korea, there are some uh, conspiracy theories still going around that the the, the corvette, the Chonan, uh, was sunk because it hit a U.S. or Chinese submarine or mine, uh, and that's what caused it to go down, and that North Korea is simply an innocent scapegoat. Now, uh, as I recall from the foreword of your book, you actually um, looked at some evidence around the sinking of the Chonan, such as the movements of planes and other things. What did you conclude from all the evidence that you've looked at? Yeah, well, I mean, conspiracy theories abound on any topic at the moment, of course. But yeah. um, for, for this case, evidence is really quite clear. Um, 
And one of one of the interesting things which we found was that uh, indeed, I think about ten days prior to the uh, to the provocation or the incident itself, uh, the North Koreans forward deployed some of their most advanced uh, advanced aircraft to um, to airfields closer to the DMZ in this uh, yeah, type of quick uh, reaction duty where uh, if, if a South Korean aircraft were to be scrambled after the uh, incident, uh, they would be able to respond very quickly. And um, these types of deployments aren't actually very common in North Korea. So you'll, you'll uh, practically never see aircraft uh, stationed on different uh, airfields, at least these aircraft, aside from uh, uh, perhaps a handful of exercises meant to uh, simulate precisely these types of uh, yeah, incursions. That, that really is one, just one uh, example mm. of, of, of evidence that, that really points at this being a planned provocation. But, right. but there's, there's pl plenty of other things that point in the same direction. And I think I think there should be really li uh, very little doubt about uh, that the the official South Korean narrative uh, is is truthful about this incident. And it also hints at the fact that um, because you were talking about the the forward deployment of airplanes, we, we get from that the the fact that uh, satellite technology is one of the best ways of studying. Uh, the North Korean military or one of the sources of information about the North Korean military. What are some other ways that we can know about or study the North Korean military? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, satellite, satellite technology has been groundbreaking uh, for, for some of the analysis that we did in this, uh, in this book. But there's actually uh, one interesting source, uh, which we're sort of, sort of secretly alluding to in the title as well. And that's uh, North Korean propaganda itself. Obviously not the most reliable source, but uh, it is interesting to note that um, the North Koreans have actually uh, started exploiting the internet, social media, and um, of course, uh, more, more official um, media broadcasts as well, in which they output uh, a vast volume of propaganda material, but also, um, yeah, well, relatively detailed military documentaries. And it is one of these documentaries which, which has actually has a title, uh, which goes something like uh, On the Path of Sungun, which is where we derive the title from. If you start shifting through all of these documentaries, there's actually tons and tons of footage that um, really couldn't have been falsified um, and which, which tells you a lot of information about the North Korean military, which uh, up until that point just wasn't available to anyone except for perhaps, uh, yeah, agencies that ha have actual spies in the north. Uh, so that's that's just one other uh, really interesting source that has become available over the last couple of decades. Right. And it's what we call uh, open source technology, isn't it? Because anyone in theory uh, should be able to find and have access to that uh, information without having to have a, a spying network or something like that. Yeah. Open source intelligence. Yeah. Open source intelligence, um, right. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's mainly the type of intelligence which we did uh, to to piece this book together, and uh, I, I think that uh, open source intelligence, especially in the last couple of decades, has uh, just become uh, incredibly much more relevant. Uh, and and you see this in a in in all types of publications that are are uh, suddenly coming to the fore. Uh, including uh, a documentary uh, which was uh, aired a while back, The Mole Undercover in North Korea, I think. Ah, yes. Which is uh, just another uh, very interesting instance of um, 
well, it's not exactly open source intelligence, but it's private individuals that are uh, taking over a role that is traditionally done by government and yes. uh, actually yeah. doing so very effectively. Uh, what can you say in general about the state of the North Korean military? Is it a credible threat to South Korea? Well, you asked that question in a very um, nuanced way because, <laughs> uh, yes, it is a very uh, it, it is a very uh, credible threat to South Korea. I mean, if only through uh, the the strategic deterrence which it has built up over the past few decades, uh, its its nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. Uh, that, of course, alone poses a, a credible threat to the entire region. But even its ground forces uh, for you know, all the outdated equipment, which it still operates an entire country of, uh, I think it's upwards of 25 million people uh, putting uh, their military first, that's, that's going to leave a mark and uh, the, the, the numbers they're capable of fielding, but also some of the technology which they're capable of fielding is, is definitely uh, very much relevant uh, on the Korean peninsula. Of course, uh, if you're going to look beyond that, uh, then, then the the picture changes but as a threat to south korea they're very very relevant okay let's look beyond the korean peninsula a little bit uh, who else is the north korean military a credible threat to well i mean all countries in the region obviously should uh consider the north koreans very carefully uh, the North Koreans are quite openly hostile to the Japanese and, and of course, U.S. military bases in the region, and uh, they, they have threatened to target such bases in the past. So um, those, those are obvious candidates, and especially with their strategic weaponry, they're now uh, capable of posing a very real threat to those nations. But you also see uh, nations such as China, especially, which of course uh, lies right uh, right next to uh, North Korea, which there are some indications that they're anxious as well about hmm. uh, the effect the North Koreans have not only on economic matters in the region, region but uh, you know, also, uh, of course, the potential for war, which no one wants a nuclear war right on their doorstep. Right. And um, if 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 uh, relations between China and North Korea were to deteriorate or suddenly shift in in an unpredictable ma manner, then uh, yeah, of course North Korea could particularly with its strategic weaponry deal some damage there. And um, so really, all countries in the in the direct uh, vicinity. And of course, we shouldn't also forget that the, the really long range the ICBMs, that type of strategic weaponry, um, if North Korea can use that to strike at the United States, then uh, in theory, they can use it to strike uh, virtually any continent, uh, mm. say for perhaps South America. So in that sense, uh, there, the, the threat is growing. Right. Now, uh, Global Firepower uh, concluded in their 2020 appraisal that the North Korean military ranked number 28 in the world. Uh, would you agree with this assessment? Uh, those types of rankings, uh, I, uh, to be honest, I don't really uh, lend much credence to them usually. Mm -hmm. um, and per perhaps for other countries, this, uh, this such a ranking makes a little bit more sense because you can sort of talk about uh, their ability to project, project power over specific distances and uh, numbers of modern tanks, etc. But in the case of North Korea, um, their military is so specialized for just one purpose, which is war on the Korean peninsula, that um, it becomes impossible to, to compare equipment or uh, abilities on a one-to-one -one basis. 
actually, I recall reading uh, an article uh, comparing the Chinese Navy with the, the, the United States one just this morning, which said that the Chinese Navy was now uh, larger than, than the, U the US one. And of course, they're talking in, in raw numbers, surface competence. Uh, I had to chuckle a bit because if, if you use just that uh, metric, then the North Korean Navy actually uh, well qualifies as one of the largest in the world as well. As well. They have uh, hundreds of hovercraft, uh, perhaps the largest submarine fleet, the, the largest hover, hovercraft fleet also hmm. indeed, and tons of surface, surface craft. But um, yeah, they're not effective outside anywhere of their own coastal regions and would likely be very quickly defeated in, uh, in an actual war. Right. So that yeah. tells you a little bit about these types of uh, comparisons. Has North Korea's military capability become better or, or different under Kim Jong-un's rule in the last 10 years? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, development under his rule has, seems really to have accelerated. Um, of course, under Kim Jong-il's rule, they, they had the arduous march, this, mm. this huge famine and uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, well, had, had a very big impact on their economy and also uh, it meant that they weren't able to uh, import as much uh, equipment for other, from other nations anymore. So during that per period, really, the, the North Korean military was uh, just in decay. So, and especially in areas of uh, its air force, but actually almost all of its branches were just uh, uh, standing still in time while its equipment was, uh, well, slowly, uh, slowly becoming more outdated. Right, and rusting away. Yeah, rusting away. And of course, you still see those same trends because they're still that, that it's even more difficult now to, for, for them to uh, import new equipment. Um, but they really seem to have doubled down on introducing new indigenous types of uh, fighting vehicles. And um, you've seen this in uh, the strategic forces where it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it grabs headlines uh, whenever they uh, test a new ballistic missile. Yeah. But uh, we're seeing equally aggress aggressive development uh, of their uh, ground forces, for instance, at this moment with a... Uh, tons of new types entering service and uh, yeah that, that's really remarkable uh, and it also sort of seems to show that uh, their innovation isn't just there to um, well as a means of securing the regime or or as a way to showcase to other nations we're still here but it, it also seems to focus on more practical uh, practical innovations that that actually uh, aid your country's uh, warfighting capability mm. if we just talk about the uh... The North Korean Air Force for a moment. Um, I've heard American military commanders remark in unclassified briefings that the uh, Korean People's Army is capable of making a large sortie of aircraft in any initial attack on South Korea if hostilities were to resume again. Uh, but because of their inferior aircraft, inferior training and lack of fuel, the Republic of Korea and US pilots would quickly gain air superiority and even air supremacy. What do you think about the, the quality of KPA pilots, given that fuel shortages have dramatically reduced their annual flying hours? And for how long would they be able to influence the battlefield before being eliminated and taken out of the picture entirely? So the, the, the story which I just told that 
uh, about uh, innovation uh, of practical matters. Well, that breaks down to a certain extent for uh, the North Korean Air Force. Huh. This is because, um, well, jet aircraft are actually notoriously difficult to produce. Uh, jet engines are only produced by by a few countries around the world, and and that usually requires this this huge, uh, very tech, high tech industry to have been set up uh, beforehand. Um, and the North Koreans, uh, aside from producing a few ba basic types, uh, es essentially stum stumbled on this, uh, this particular issue uh, in the 1990s. Uh, and they, they never really got it down. And that means that uh, innovation for their air forces uh, is, is, is a lot more difficult matter. This situation has actually resulted in, in quite likely the most unique air force doctrine of, of any nation in the world. I wouldn't particularly call North Korean pilots, for instance, undertrained. Uh, we've seen some increase of uh, um, training hours for pilots under Kim Jong-un's rule and um, an especially heavy emphasis on uh, new ground trainers and simulations to, to make up for, uh, for a lack of, of true uh, air, air combat training. Uh, realistic scenarios in which their air force actually opposes the South Korean or U.S. air force, uh, those are presumably not trained as much anymore because mm. they, they only have a handful of aircraft that are actually capable of doing so. And even those aircraft, uh, yeah, basically lag behind one or two entire generations. Uh, so what you're seeing is that most of their types are actually uh, types of aircraft are actually being converted for very different roles where the South Korean pilots are to make quick insertions into the uh, well South Korean airspace. And um, sorry, you mean North uh, Korean pilots? North Korean pilots. Sorry, yeah. Uh, make quick insertions and support ground forces there, or uh, drop off special forces in South Korean. Uh, uh, yeah. On South Korean ground, instead of really engaging uh, uh, the South Korean and the U.S. Air Force, uh, and in that sense, it also serves more as a as a distraction during the opening stages of a conflict. And um, the the main uh, manner in which the North Koreans are planning on uh, countering an uh, opposing air force is actually uh, more from the ground. Uh, or to air defenses, and they're they're relying on on that combination to uh, uh, get them through the initial critical stages of a war. Still, it does sound though that that once I mean, assuming that it is as the American military commanders have said that uh, they expect you know the ROC and U.S. pilots to get air supremacy quite quickly, and it it sounds that that might be the case given as you say the the lack of uh, of uh, capable jet fighters. It sounds like all of the Korean People's Army non-air assets will be largely open to allied air attacks quite quickly after the commencement of hostilities. And, and they would be surgical strikes, not the type of you know, carpet bombing of the entire peninsula that we saw in the 1950s. Um, well, that's true. But the, the, the point is that uh, the North Koreans are trying to, to postpone that moment as long as possible. Uh, the moment is, is inevitable. Mm. Uh, I don't think anyone has any illusions about the North Korean Air Force being capable of truly opposing the South Korean one, much less the, the US Air Force. Um, but it does have uh, one of the densest uh, and most expansive air defense networks of the entire world. Um, and uh, they're relying on, on the, the US and South Koreans uh, to, 
to be forced to first dismantle this uh, this vast network before they can uh, truly start targeting uh, yeah say, uh, other targets like uh, like uh, armed columns. Mm. Tell us a little bit about how their air defense network works. Is it simply uh, surface to air missiles, or is it a bit more complicated than that? Well, actually, the the, the vast majority of air defense sites is uh, still of, of good old-fashioned uh, anti-aircraft artillery, of which ah. they uh, operate operate various types. Uh, also, a, a few new uh, indigenous innovations in that area. These are really only effective of of. Uh, uh, firing at aircraft uh, at really short ranges, uh, wow. I think uh, five kilometers, something like that. Um, and um, this this aspect of their air defense network, in a sense, has been completely superseded by uh, yeah long range precision guided mis missiles, which can target them from well beyond their range. Mm. Um, but the fact that these uh, sites, of which they have literally thousands, strung across the country. Uh, sometimes as little as a stone's throw away from each other, uh, especially in the vicinity of Pyongyang. Yeah. Uh, the fact is these sites are heavily um, yeah, reinforced and uh, also feature equipment which be, would be very effective ground, effect, uh, against ground forces, means that it probably does need to be dismantled at some point, which is going to be a, just a grueling task, which, uh, which would require vast amounts of, uh, of munitions. So it sounds like they're really they're playing the numbers game, hoping that they'll be able to, you know, uh, really keep the, the the U.S. and South Korean forces at bay as long as possible. Yeah, well, that's definitely one aspect of it. Of course, uh, it, it also helps that keeping their uh, population occupied while operate operating such air defense sites, which are often linked to the nearest vill village, mm -hmm. uh, is also a great way of keeping your population. Uh, doing something which uh, seems to make sense. Anyway, to get back at your, your question about uh, the North Korean air defenses, of course, they have this, this more advanced layer of, of air defense missiles in which they're uh, investing quite heavily, uh, both uh, older types that they are now uh, um, Im improving indigenously and, and new types, which seem to be derived from, uh, for instance, the Russian S-300 uh, uh, missile system. But most of these types of uh, uh, air defenses have been soundly defeated in the past. So they probably wouldn't uh, pose a very great difficulty to, uh, for instance, the U.S. Air Force. You just mentioned uh, some Russian technology, and that brings me to my next question, which is to what extent is North Korea dependent on importing military resources and technology from other countries? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question because... In in a certain sense of sense, of course, they're not. I mean, their their stated uh, ideology of Juche uh, self reliance uh, tells them they should produce everything themselves. And even if that uh, that wasn't their ideology, then uh, sanctions prevent any any type of military exports to North Korea in North Korea entirely. And um, aside from some a handful of cases, uh, that that seems to be effective. But at the same time, uh, we're seeing this 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 uh, odd development where new North Korean weaponry, more often than not, seems to be based on pretty advanced uh, foreign designs. That seems to indicate uh, that they they have an influx of technology rather than uh, yeah weapon systems uh, as a whole. Would it be fair to say that most of their original equipment manufacturing is imported from? Uh, China and Russia? Um, 
during the Cold War, they definitely imported entire factories as, as uh, yeah, Soviet or Chinese-aligned countries uh, uh, were wont to do. Um, but nowadays, it, 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 it isn't even about um, importing entire factories or manufacturing tools. It, it really seems to be more about uh, importing. Uh, well, it, it, of course, we can't prove that they're importing uh, such matters, but it, it seems to be the case that they're importing technology and, mm. and putting that technology to work in their designs, which, which then are completely indigenously built in, in existing factories. Uh, and that means that production rates uh, still lag behind the introduction of new technology. But because of the way they've set up their modern arms technology, uh, our modern arms industry, they're, they're capable of, of um, a, reasonably, a reasonably high production volume of, of new uh, designs uh, anyway. What, uh, is there anything that people who study... Uh, militaries around the world can learn from looking at North Korean weapons. Can they sort of extrapolate back and learn something about Chinese and Russian weapon systems? Well, the the basic assumption there is that the North Korean weaponry is is somehow uh, identical to the Russian or Chinese ones, and uh, in, in that sense. Uh, I think that would probably be uh, going a step too far because you can't always conclusively uh, prove such a link. And uh, it, it, it's it's a fact that North Korean weaponry always has this, this indigenous touch, which of course um, sort of uh, is going to muddle, muddle the picture and, and mm. make sure that their capabilities are slightly different. Uh, but the fact that over the past 10 years or so, they've begun uh, publishing yeah, reports of their weapons tests uh, so, uh, so detailed in, in terms of images and sometimes even data, uh, it does mean that you get a very clear picture of what certain types of weaponry are uh, suddenly capable of doing. And that, that includes types of weaponry that aren't really used by uh, uh, mainstream Western, uh, Western militaries. And that, that includes, for instance, the use of uh, GPS technology on, on modern, uh, modern long and medium and, and short range missiles to ensure that, that rockets have a, a basically pinpoint accuracy. And um, that, that, that is very interesting to see. And I think that's a lesson that can definitely be applied to other countries investing in such technologies at the moment as well. Mm. Now, of course, North Korea has been under various uh, United Nations, um, uh, EU and, and other sanctions for many years. Uh, how is it that weapons and or technology that shouldn't be able to make it into North Korea uh, is actually getting into North Korea? Well, let me head off by saying that, that uh, some of the technologies that I've, I've been talking of, for instance, the S-300 uh, SAM system, which is a, well, it, it, it at least it used to be a very uh, uh, dreaded uh, air defense system. Of some of these, we have indications that they were delivered prior to the, the sanctions, or, wow. or at least the technology was delivered. So uh, that, that wouldn't be such a case. Mm -hmm. uh, for cases that occurred after, the United Nations Security Council uh, reports on, on sex sanctions breached by the North Koreans actually in their latest report have this have an interesting section which talks about um, intangible technology transfers by which they essentially mean exactly the topic which we are discussing right now, perhaps more in a, in a strategic uh, uh, context. 
And uh, well, they, they posit that uh, perhaps uh, cooperations with North Korean uh, scientists in the, uh, abroad on, on joint projects uh, is the source for such technology uh, le uh, leaking back into North Korea. And uh, well, they state that, you know, so, such sensitive projects should probably be stopped. Mm. But I'm not entirely sure that that would account for uh, the phenomenon that we are seeing right now. And um, yeah. well, uh, aside from the North Koreans staging a huge uh, uh, misinformation campaign, which of course we can't ex exclude either, uh, that, that definitely would not be uh, beneath them, uh, so to say. But, uh, the, you know, there's, there's also a really uh, interesting uh, uh, possibility that they, they are receiving some information one way or, an, or another through hacking. Uh, mm. which of course North Korea is in, investing heavily in and, and you know, uh, the instances of North Koreans hacking uh, both money and technology uh, have been uncovered many times in the, in the past few years alone. And there was also a, a fun case of uh, some Cuban anti-submarine helicopters. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about we, that we story. Did, we did an article on that uh, a while ago, but um, that was more of a case of uh, a delivery of... Um, to the North Koreans, quite modern helicopters that for years and years had gone under the radar. So uh, I think those were delivered in the early 2000s, in fact. Mm. And uh, of course, to the Cubans, they, they, they were somewhat older types as, uh, already. Um, but only now the full story was uncovered of uh, how these helicopters were clandestinely uh, transported to North Korea and uh, and how the yeah well how of course they're rotting away at some airfield there uh, as of yet but oh that, so they're not being really, used well the North Koreans have uh, had uh, some some very ambitious plan uh, ambitious plans to overhaul their navy and uh, introduce a couple of new corvettes which have a, a, a helicopter deck huh. and um these types of uh, anti-submarine helicopters are, of course, uh, ideal for such craft. Uh, right. But the North Koreans seem to have backtracked a little bit and actually started converting uh, these types to, uh, well, Corvettes that, that no longer can carry helicopters. Oh. Uh, so as of yet, uh, all of their submarine warfare capable heli helicopters are just uh, s sitting inland. Uh, and uh, I think uh, most of their rotor blades are, uh, are currently removed. Oh. Uh, so no, they're not in active use. And how were they uh, clandestinely shipped? And were they uh, disguised as uh, something else or hidden under some uh, innocuous uh, ship lading? Well, obviously, we have data on these types of uh, uh, shippings, mainly when, when they fail. So right. when, when someone figures out, oh, shit, the, they, they hid them uh, under a couple of bags of rice. Um, but uh, in this case, obviously, uh, the, the transfer didn't didn't fail and they, they have those helicopters right now. So right. we can't really tell. But um, a, a good guess of, would, of course, be uh, true international shipping. Uh, that, that seems to be uh, par for the course in the past couple of decades. But they have used uh, large aircraft uh, uh, to transport uh, um, weaponry in the past as well so uh, mm. there, there's there's a number of techniques which they use for uh, silent uh, transfers now north korea also sells a lot of its own weapons and systems for export who are north korea's main customers well their their customers are uh, in a sense broad because uh, they they have no scruples uh, about who they are uh, they would be selling to so uh, virtually anyone uh, 
can can uh, reach out to North Korean companies and, and see if uh, uh, if they can purchase uh, uh, any weaponry so long as they have the money to pay for it. Right. Um, and uh, that that means that you see North Korean uh, weaponry popping up all the time in in uh, in, in strange places. Uh, sometimes that that uh, relates back to their their past of uh, exporting weaponry broadly to the Middle East, to to Asia, to to uh, the entirety of Africa. Are they selling some... to both state and non-state actors? In some cases, uh, it yes, as in. Um, most cases what you've seen has been uh, uh, dealings with state actors, and this is mainly because uh, state actors are, are more reliable and... Uh, right, they can pay. Um, yeah, uh, but they, they really have no scruples when it comes to selling to private actors uh, uh, either. And uh, this is actually one of the, the interesting things which you see in the documentary uh, The Mall, undercover mm. in North Korea. Um, the the more it's him himself and uh, um, especially the, the yeah the, the actor which they hire to play uh, uh, an ambitious uh, millionaire or billionaire uh, that comes to purchase North Korean weaponry they're meant to represent uh, private actors and uh, they at a certain point simply get offered uh, anything from uh, ballistic missiles to uh, anti-tank weaponry and uh, advanced jam jamming systems yeah. so uh, yeah yeah the North Koreans are willing to uh, to sell to basically everyone in uh, in writing this book, uh, what was something that you and Stein uh, learned about North Korea's military systems that you think would surprise even most military people? I think there's there's probably a widespread impression that much of the innovation which you do see is much of a more of a show than that it is uh, uh, real. That beyond the innovation which you do see, uh, their military is mostly mostly rotting. Um, but when you start closely looking at, at uh, what weapon systems they've actually been uh, producing, exporting and uh, introducing into their own military, uh, you see that um, they seem to be a lot more serious about this than uh, others expect. That exhibits itself in uh, new systems that, that have a very practical uh, yeah, uses in their military and that aren't very flashy, that, that are still being developed. Uh, and uh, whenever we find such a case where uh, we see North Korean export brochures or uh, whatever they have been working on in recent years for their export market, uh, we're somewhat surprised about the diversity of uh, uh, equipment on offer and also uh, the practicality of the equipment on offer that, that can include, for instance, uh, very advanced jamming systems in, in a, a myriad of uh, different configurations and different purposes uh, but it can also uh, be uh, simply introducing body armor or uh, more advanced optics, uh, optics on their weaponry which um, yeah they direly needed but uh, that hadn't until now uh, introduced this this fact that they seem to be rather rather efficient at maintaining a warfighting capability even under such extreme sanctions and mm. uh, well mostly of course uh, their own uh, dilapidated uh, economy that that was uh, quite surprising to me you uh, now of course we, we talk about a military that there's the hardware on the one side and then there's the people who use it uh, on the other uh, and to quote previous nk news podcast guest uh, retired lieutenant colonel steve tharp 
the hardware is only as good as those who are using it. Uh, and from his time in the uh, demilitarized zone, he said that the average height and weight of a North Korean soldier back in 1995 was uh, five foot two and 120 pounds. Uh, and seven years later in 2002, they were down to five foot nothing uh, and 100 pounds. Uh, and anecdotal stories of civilian defectors still tell of soldiers stealing crops from the fields in North Korea. And even the uh, defector who came through the JSA, you know, on foot in uh, November 2017, uh, he was only five foot five inches tall, and he was the son of a senior KPA officer, and he was considered to be quite tall for his uh, uh, for his, you know, his cadre. Does your book address the problems regarding military personnel in general, and specifically the food shortages that they faced for the last twenty-five years? I mean, uh, the the book is uh, focused on on organizational structures and and especially equipment and uh, uh, numbers more than it is on on uh, on these aspects. But we do do of course touch on, upon this fact because it's it's uh, very relevant to uh, the North Korean situation. In a sense, uh, this is, of course, entirely true, because uh, not only do the North Koreans face food shortages and uh, that can result in, uh, in lower morale, of course, and, and lower physical uh, uh, capabilities, but their military is, in fact, so large uh, and uh, the Songun policy of uh, military first is, is so widespread that uh, much of their military is actually uh, em yeah, constantly uh, employed as, as uh, labor in their country. So you'll see each military base, for instance, uh, has to maintain a, a trout farm or, uh, or it, its own crop fields. Uh, you have uh, shock construction brigades, which are military units tasked with uh, uh, build, uh, yeah, building new flats in North Korea uh, instead of training for, for a war. And of course, that's, that's going to uh, have its impact uh, uh, on, on your war fighting capabilities in the end. At the same time, of course, they have uh, different types of military units, some of which may be more uh, professional than others, mm. and uh, some of which are also uh, very intensely engaged in training. So you may see a deficit in, in, in some areas and, and uh, added morale from, uh, yeah, well, perhaps uh, political fanaticism uh, in, in others. Do we know anything about uh, North Korean military uh, battlefield hospitals or, or medical care for soldiers in, in the event of a war? So yeah, this is one of the cases uh, which I was talking about, where you 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 end up being somewhat surprised when you you uh, start investigating the more mundane aspects of North Korean military matters, and uh, they have uh, invested in uh, military field hospitals and and uh, such such matters uh, in the past. So we have seen some of the equipment which they use for for those uh, for those purposes. Of course, much of it is going to be uh, outdated, and and you do see that on the civilian side of things, uh, their their uh, hospital system is is uh, vastly lacking. During a war, uh, care for the average North Korean so soldier might be might be quite basic. Yeah. Now, back in on October tenth last year, uh, you provided some uh, live commentary and analysis of the military parade in uh, Pyongyang, uh, and then in January this year, after the Korean Workers Party Congress, there was another parade. Uh, at, at both of those parades, there was some new 
things, some new equipment on display. After watching those two parades, uh, is there anything substantial that you would add to a revised or updated version of your book? Yeah, in, in a certain sense, uh, these parades were a bit of a shame because especially the first of the two uh, included just uh, incredible amounts of new new equipment. So. Um, uh, in a revised version of my uh, of of our book, we we definitely have to address those uh, those those new introductions. Um, unfortunately, uh, we're going to be able to actually do that because um, starting later this year, uh, the 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 original uh, version of our book will be split up in a number of uh, separate volumes, which ah. will discuss the different branches uh, uh, separately. And uh, for those versions of the book, we'll be able to uh, update all the uh, most recent information. Right. But um, of course, you're always going to have this problem. Uh, it, it's a situation that is rapidly develop, developing. So one year after you publish a book, there's going to be a ton of uh, revisions which you want to uh, add to your book. I've, I've made my peace with that. And yeah. uh, I hope uh, people that buy the book can too, because it, it of course, con still contains everything up to uh, up to those parades, which is, uh, uh, yeah, basically... Uh, over half a century of, of very detailed information that uh, hasn't yet become outdated. Right. And some people say that the, uh, the weapon systems that we see in these parades are not always 100% real, that they may be models or prototypes or even fakes. What do you think about that suggestion? Um, well, in some cases, there are um, parading, for instance, ballistic missile, missiles. And uh, over the years, we've sort of learned in the intelligence community that this, this should more be imp uh, interpreted as this is a missile system which we are working on mm. than this is a missile system which we have. Right. Uh, so that, that means that uh, on a few select cases, they, they've actually paraded missiles which ended up not being produced because uh, the design had flaws. But in, in those cases, a, a different design uh, came to supplant them. So what you're seeing during the parades at times is, is a, a situation that is in flux, and uh, especially for very new models, uh, yeah. and that includes uh, other, other types of vehicles, not ballistic missiles, uh, you're going to see differences between examples in one parade and the next because the, the, the final design is still changing. And actually during the, the most recent parade, they, uh, they showed us uh, a number of, of a new main battle tanks. Uh, and uh, for, for once they, they actually explicitly mentioned in their uh, press reports that it was still a prototype, uh, mm. which they were working on. So then, yeah, you, you know for a fact that the design is probably going to change. Now, what about this massive, very fat-looking uh, submarine-launched ballistic missile that was shown in the January parade? It, it looked uh, huge. How big would a submarine have to be to carry such a thing? Well, uh, that, that's actually an interesting question, because uh, as you may know, the North Koreans only have uh, very limited platforms that are capable of land launching submarine-launched uh, ballistic missiles. Well, some of these are obviously too small. Uh, they 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 have uh, their their very first design, the Gore. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, submarine, which uh, has has a single launch tube in its uh, conning tower and uh, in its sail, uh, and uh, uh, the the missile that can be launched from that uh, sail is is a is a large 
smaller than this one. Mm. Uh, and then they sh showcased uh, another submarine design, which was derived from an, uh, or uh, it was modified from an old uh, North Korean submarine, uh, which uh, has the potential of car uh, carrying some larger missile. But uh, actually, the, the type of missile that presumably is launched from this submarine um, yeah, they, they already showcased it. So they, they showcased it. So they, they seem to be suggesting that there's there's a, another uh, submarine in the works. And, and in fact, that is what we're seeing uh, in, in open source intelligence, uh, that there's a, a third uh, SOBM capable submarine, which they are working on. And that may in, in fact be a much larger one than the first two uh, designs capable of launching multiple ballistic missiles uh, and uh, yeah, with more advanced capabilities, uh, more practical capabilities too than either. And that's uh, that new submarine that we haven't yet seen finished may be the one that carries this big fat SLBM that was shown in January. That's definitely possible. Uh, it, it's difficult to, to uh, be too certain about these matters because uh, right. they're, they're showcasing a surprising amount of designs. And it's, it's of course, uh, hard to pinpoint which goes on which. I'm just wondering, I'm not an expert, obviously, in submarines, but are there would there be any difficulties or risks expected in launching such a, a large thing from one submarine? Would there be any, you know, any risk of the submarine itself being damaged or, or sunk? Um, well, for this purpose, of course, you test the missile a lot of times, and yeah. and um, uh, there there are very specific uh, um, technologies that are associated with SLBMs that prevent uh, such uh, risks. So uh, SLBMs are typically solid fueled, not always, but but typically they are, and that that means they are uh, well more stable and and more. Uh, capable of withstanding the, the stresses of, of uh, an underwater launch. Mm. Uh, the North Korean ones use a, a gas generator, which means that the missile is first pushed out of the launch tube, uh, and then only when it uh, uh, emerges from the water, it, it ignites its main engine. Ah, um, okay. That that was that does answer. Because <laughs> I always wondered yeah, how would you yeah. you know set off the giant engine inside the sub. Okay, so you 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 do a little pop up launch first with it with gas, and then once it's in the air, then the the engine comes into play. Yeah, yeah, nah. but uh, actually, uh, they they use these barges to test these missiles from. They submerge the barges and then launch the missile. That right. that that is how they develop the the missiles. Um, but there is some suggestion that their uh, first SOBM capable submarine was at one point during the testing uh, program damaged by one such launch Oops. because something went wrong. Yeah. Uh, but the damage doesn't seem to have been very extensive, and they uh, they uh, seem to have fixed it relatively quickly. Now, uh, there's something that uh, a lot of tourists and other visitors to North Korea have often seen and wondered about, including myself, and that is these uh, very, very super shiny chrome-plated guns that we see some North Korean soldiers holding. And you actually wrote an article about that in, in 2014 uh, for NK News about why that is and, and where these guns come from. Uh, what's up with these guns? Yeah, that's that's uh, at this point an interesting part of uh, North Korean military culture. Uh, that the, it's part of a, a program of which the North Koreans had a had a number over the over the decades, uh, where um, units that uh, were deemed to be performing 
admirably uh, were rewarded with, uh, uh, for instance, a, speci a specific title such as the O Jung Hooplet Seventh uh, Regiment or the uh, Trice uh, Red Flag Company, things like that. Uh, and then when when the unit received such a such an award, uh, Kim Jong Un or Kim Jong Il uh, or Kim Il Sung, uh, presumably back in his day, would come to the regiment personally and uh, usually hand. Uh, well, uh, a chrome-plated AK and uh, a chrome-plated uh, uh, magazine, uh, li light machine gun. Oh, I see. And 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 uh, often some brass binoculars. Uh, those were then usually the three items. And you see that those units which received them uh, uh, covered those items and uh, showcased them during uh, during exercises, uh, where of course their their usefulness is. Uh, doubtful because yeah. they stand out like a sore thumb in combat yeah they wouldn't be good for uh, any infiltration units or uh, nighttime cover work or camouflage no i would uh, definitely hope for the north koreans that they uh, would not use them in such uh, such instances perhaps the, the use is only ceremonial but we do see uh, units using them uh, during exercises a lot huh. so uh they, uh, it seems to be part of the personal equipment of the soldier that that received it, and uh, right. despite the fact that uh, if there's any any type of uh, uh, painting on your on your gun which would be inconvenient during combat, it would be a uh, chrome, of course. Right. It's not expected to uh, to damage the effectiveness as a weapon. Uh, no, I would I would think not. Perhaps uh, the the weapon is, a, is slightly heavier, but right. uh, presumably it operates as intended. Okay. Hmm. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about um, the mole, uh, which we uh, uh, mentioned briefly at the start of the interview. Uh, so for our listeners, late last year, the documentary film by Danish filmmaker Mads Brugger came out, titled The Mole. Uh, and, and shortly after that, uh, Joost and Stein, you both wrote an article for NK Pro entitled What the Mole Documentary Tells Us About North Korea's Weapons. So I'm wondering if you, uh, Joost, could you give us a brief summary of your conclusions? Yeah, sure. For, for some people, it may simply be interesting to note that uh, the North Koreans at this point seem to be reasonably desperate when it comes to uh, exporting weaponry. So the number of uh, background checks performed uh, yeah. for the, the, yeah, the undercover uh, uh, agents of, of the mall was uh, surprisingly low and they were surprisingly willing to go along with uh, the, these crazy plots at uh, yeah, exporting weaponry to to actors which they they barely even knew. Right. So that's interesting, and, and it, it in fact even included ballistic uh, offering ballistic missiles. So um, and launchers and also, too, right? And, and launchers, uh, yeah, indeed, of of a previous generation uh, that uh, all of these uh, designs sort of stemmed from the 1990s, but they they were uh, and perhaps early 2000s, but they were still very interesting. Uh, to note that they are being so so free in in uh, in offering those particular systems, but uh, to the military an analyst, uh, the the real interesting developments perhaps lay in in uh, the types of weaponry which they offered, which which weren't yet known, ah. and um, that that especially uh, a ton of new systems which were an offshoot of their electronics industry. So that includes uh, SAR jammers, uh, AWACS jammers, uh, new anti-drone anti guns, which are these guns that send out 
uh, microwave uh, frequencies and uh, thereby disable the controls of uh, of drugs. Yeah. Um, and and that that's a very interesting, uh, yeah, window into uh, modern North Korea into North Korean into electronics uh, industry, which most of the times is reasonably obscure. Right. It was pretty surprising to see how diverse their their offer at this point has become. But were they also offering a, I think the term is electromagnetic pulse uh, weapon to basically damage the uh, the electricity uh, supply and all electrical items of, of an enemy power? Was that also on offer? Do you know? Uh, no, not, not, not that I'm aware of. The, those devices um, usually come in two types, which is uh, the nuclear ones. Uh, uh -huh. Any nuclear blast uh, produces an uh, electromagnetic pulse. And yep. uh, of course, the North Koreans have control of that technology because they have nuclear weapons. Sure. Um, but the, the non-nuclear ele electromagnetic pulse is actually a, a very, very advanced and difficult uh, technology uh -huh. to master. So I, I wouldn't expect that to be on the on the direct wish list of the North Korean <laughs> military, especially in their export uh, brochures. Uh, right. So. And they, in the film, we saw them hand over, uh, amazingly, a, a sort of a full color paper printed catalog of, uh, of their, uh, you know, what they're selling. Um, have you been able to have a look at this document yet? No, no, unfortunately not yet. Uh, I, I would very much like to because uh, these these documents, of course, uh, they're sort of very much coveted for uh, military analysts. Uh, yes. I, I have a couple couple of such documents that I've been uh, capable of looking at uh, in the past, and they they often tell you so much about a weapon system, not only uh, its capabilities but also the the precise origin of the technology and that, mm. that can of course tell you a whole lot about uh, arms proliferation uh, yeah. so uh, i do hope that that becomes available at some point soon uh, but uh, I'm, I'm going to keep keep on uh, trying to get my hands on that in the near future okay maybe i'll put you in uh, email contact with mads brugger you can ask him directly yeah actually i i have already uh, oh, we, whoops, we have okay. been in contact so uh <laughs> I, I have confidence that that will uh, will be able to meet at some point and uh, yeah uh, do you know if there's been any follow-up by authorities from either the united nations or interpol or any other uh, national police agencies on the basis of the allegations made in that film as far as i know the, the uh the, the, this this was my impression that the, the United Nations Security Council was uh, reviewing the material. Mm. So uh, they they obviously are going to be looking into the matter. But uh, so far, I haven't seen anything about uh, conclusions. Okay. Well, uh, that I think we'll leave it there for today. Once again, uh, for our listeners, the book is The Armed Forces of North Korea on the Path of Songun by Steinmetzer and Joost Olimans. And you'll be able to find that uh, online at helion, H-E-L-I-O-N.co.uk for 45 British pounds, which is roughly 61 US dollars, 50 euro or 67,000 Korean won. A beautifully produced full color uh, hardback, uh, postage not included. Uh, I can recommend it to listeners as an amazing piece of research and an excellent finished product. So once again, thanks to you, Joost, for coming on a second time to record this. I'm glad to say that the, the audio sounds much, much better today, so we shouldn't have any problems getting that, uh, this podcast episode out. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
Thanks for your time and your patience. Uh, don't forget to our listeners, you can uh, subscribe to this podcast through nknews.org and uh, listen again next week. Don't forget to send us some feedback and also let us know if you'd like us to uh, invite any other guests on that you can think of. Our thanks as always to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast and to Arias Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and listen again next time. Thank you.